The message of Easter brings out into the open. The greatest, perhaps the greatest, well, it is the greatest, and final phobia that we face and engulfs it in joyful praise and victory. In the scriptures, we only know of Jesus weeping one time. It was at the funeral of a friend, a friend named Lazarus. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Kids love to have it as their memory verse. <laughs> Jesus wept. What's um, compelling about that particular incident is that Jesus was about to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead in maybe 20 or 30 seconds. And here he is weeping. We ask the question, why would Jesus be crying at this point? He knows that the result and the outcome is going to be quite joyful. It seems to me that Jesus wasn't weeping about the fact he was going to be raising Lazarus from the dead in 30 seconds, but rather looking around at all these mourners at the funeral. All these people. This group of people were, were his friends. He loved these people. And he was looking at them and realizing that while he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, all of these people, including Lazarus, were destined to die. And there would be more funerals and more sadness and more grief year after year after year after year. And Jesus looked down through the corridor of time to today. And he was weeping. He was weeping because of the greatest enemy we all face, death. History would be littered with grief and agony over that most horrible enemy. We call it death. I was looking up some statistics this weekend. Every day, more than 500 Canadians die. By the year 2035, statistics say that 1,253 Canadians will die every day. That's almost one every minute. That's a lot of funeral services, a lot of weeping, a lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. So Jesus wept. But I haven't come to talk to you about sorrow and pain and weeping and crying today. This is Resurrection Sunday. I've come to talk to you about something else. I've come to talk to you about the glorious victory that Easter Sunday reminds us of. I've come to talk to you about uh, the fact that death will be, death is defeated. And that uh, you and I can get in on the victory that Christ has secured for us all those many years ago and why we're here this morning celebrating. Why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 or your electronic device, whatever you brought this morning, or, or, or just grab the person's Bible beside you and take it. And <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15. 
because I, I think there's some really critical things to share. I want to follow along on Pastor Calvin's sermon last week and pick up uh, the rest of the story in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in, in this story, God wins. It's, it's, an, it's a remarkable uh, situation. The great distinction, you know, between other forms of religious activity or other religions, as well as the main theme of Christianity, is resurrection. Make no mistake about it. It is the theme of our beliefs, resurrection. We believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to more than 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 6. And if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Is that good news? Romans 6, 5. And Paul went on to say, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And for 90 years, this is what Calvary preaches, and this is what you have believed, the vast majority of you in here. But even though the people of Paul's time in Corinth believed, he said, this is what you believe, they were having some doubts, it would appear, on the basis of what we find he writes. They were having some concerns about the reality of the resurrection and how it would take place. And, and you know how it goes, the, the doubts, the what-ifs. What if this? But what about that? Or what if this? And, and so they had been com communicating with him, apparently, some of these concerns and doubts. And, and so he rehearses with them the stakes. What's at stake in terms of this reality of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior? What is at stake? And, of course, he reminds them that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is useless. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be most pitied of all. We've kind of just wasted a Sunday gathering in here. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then then you're still all loaded down with sin and there's no hope for you in your life. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then, then loved ones who've gone on before you and have been buried in the grave, there's no hope for them. And so he goes on to tell them all of this. But then it seems to me that he changes his whole line of argumentation by the time we get to verse 20 of, of 1 Corinthians 15. It seems as if he says, look, I, I'm going to tell you and every other generation after you why the resurrection is not only nice to believe, but it's an event that had to happen, or the universe makes absolutely no sense. In fact, he goes on to say, God makes no sense. There are nice realities about the resurrection that we benefit from, and we'll look at that. But I want to say at the outset that what Paul is, is, is endeavoring to prove here to them is that the very reality of the God of the universe hinges on Christ's resurrection from the dead. Listen to how he puts it, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
it's like a mic drop moment. Paul says this, mic drop. He picks his mic up and decides to say a little bit more. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all, I underlined that in my Bible, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that, that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. I want to point out to you this morning by way of four questions what I hope will stir great celebration in your heart this Easter. Four questions that I think are found in this section from verse 20 right through to the end of the chapter, actually. And the first question I think, I think Paul is answering, although he doesn't explicitly state this in question form, I'm convinced verse 20 to 28 is answering the question, why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? And the reason I say that is because verse 28 kind of gives the answer. Whenever you see a so that, it's the reason. So there's a, there's a question here. What is the question? The question is, why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? They were doubting, questioning, and all of that, and, and, and Paul lays it on the line. He says, look, I'm just going to lay it out straight for you. Whether you're struggling with this, having fears and doubts and, and what ifs and all of that, I'm going to tell you why Christ had to be raised from the dead. It's not left anymore to interpretation. It's why did he have to be? And the simple, the answer that he moves us through in this section is this. Jesus' mission is to destroy... All dominion and authority and power that rejects and rebels against God. That's the mission of Christ. You want to understand what Christ is about? He is setting out to destroy all dominion, authority, and power that rebels and rejects, rejects and rebels against God. Jesus Christ is in a mop-up work of what Adam failed to do. And what we have failed to do because of sin. At creation, God created humankind to bring under control, under the, the dominance of God, dominion, authority, and power. That was the assignment of humanity. Adam failed. The second Adam, as the point in the text is, Christ Jesus has come along not to fail, to succeed in this assignment. 
nothing will be allowed to have the last say on the God of life. And there is one huge rebellious enemy to the life-giving God, and that is death. That's why he calls it here, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus' assignment was to put all enemies, verse 25, under his foot. The last one standing is death. So his point is, Jesus had to rise because nothing must stand in the way of God being totally dominant over every possible thing in the universe. And here's the reason. At the very last phrase of verse 21, so that, here's the reason, so that God may be all in all. In fact, you can, you can accordion this whole section by taking the front phrase in verse 20 and the last phrase in verse 28, and it answers the question, why did Christ have to be raised from the dead? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead so that God may be all in all. Death is overthrown, is reversed, because God must be all in all. Now, this is what happens as a collateral benefit to us. You'll see in the text it says, Everyone, for, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, he says, Everyone related to Adam is scheduled to die. And just so we can be clear on that, Every single human being in this room this morning is related to Adam. Adam's the first man. Eve's the first woman. By the way, this kind of theology leaves no room for any other creative model other than an original Adam and an original Eve. Otherwise, we are dead in our sins and we are doomed for all eternity. Because the theology of this truth is predicated on us all dying in Adam. We all are dead in Adam because of his sin and because of our sins. But here's the great news. Everyone who is in Christ, all in Christ, will be made alive. So the bad news is, all in Adam die. The great news, the celebration news here this morning is, all in Christ will be made alive. That's the news of this text. That's the news we believe. Christ, the first fruits, the first fruit, guarantees that there will be a great harvest. And look at us this morning. How many of you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Wave at me. Look at the great harvest here this morning. 2,000 years later, the first fruit is Jesus Christ. The guarantee, the promise of a harvest of, of, of uh, uh, believers, a, a harvest of disciples. All his enemies must be placed under his foot. Those who belong to him, it's reinforced. 
He hands over the kingdom to God. All of history is moving toward the unveiling and the vindication of God's complete dominance over the universe. Death cannot be allowed to stand, beloved. It cannot. It cannot be allowed to stand. And it says here, after all his enemies, all the enemies of God are destroyed. Can I pause here for a second? You are either an enemy of God or you are a friend of God. The world breaks into two, uh, two categories. That's it. It's not about nationality. It's not about country. It's not about political stripe. It's not about anything like that. It's not about male, female. It's not, nothing like that. It divides into two things. You're either an enemy of God or you're a friend of God through Jesus Christ. That's how the world breaks down. And so when Jesus intends to put all of the enemies of God under his foot and all who belong to God will enjoy the benefits of Christ's resurrection. Now, so therefore, our destiny is resurrection. All in Christ, our destiny. That, it's so, it, so critically important was this to the early church that they actually changed the day of worship celebration from the Sabbath to the first day of the week to, to mark this centerpiece of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these were Jews who were converted. They were used to worshiping the living God on the Sabbath, and they they were willing to take the persecution and the hassle and all that went with that to actually radically change the day of worship to the first day of the week to celebrate resurrection every Sunday. Now, I've been pastoral ministry for a long, long time, and I've, I've tried to navigate some changes in my life. I've never tried to navigate a change like that. Can you imagine if I said to you today, okay, you know what, gang, this is the last Sunday that we're worshiping. We're going to worship on Tuesdays from now on. That's going to be, the, that's going to be our day of worship. Can you imagine the, the hue and cry I would face? It would be like a, a I, I can't even imagine it, the pylon that would happen as I was at the front of the church. People would just be jumping all over me. We're not going, we're not changing that. Anyway, I don't want you to get the idea that we can't worship on Tuesday. We could if we wanted to. We should be worshipers every day to the living Christ, obviously. But the, the ceremonial day, the celebration day was actually changed because it's the centerpiece of our hope. One uh, Christian writer has written a book uh, entitled Enjoying Your Best Life Now. I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, if this is the best life right now, I want a refund on my Christianity. Anybody with me on all that? I want, a big, I want a big time refund. This, this is talking about our best life. Our best life isn't now. Our best life is when Jesus comes back for us and takes us to be with him for all of eternity. No more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more dying. Are you serious? That's the best life. That's what we're looking for here in this text. Therefore, our destiny is resurrection. But then uh, we skip down here to verse 35, and they asked him another question. Because um, when he's talking about being raised from the dead, they got some wild ideas in their mind, apparently. They were, they were trying to imagine, well, what would it be like to have, like, corpses rising up from the grave in various stages of decay? 
And they were talking to Paul about, that seems yucky. I, I don't know if we're really into that, Paul. It's, it's weird. And uh, they, they must have been thinking about the walking dead. I'm not sure what they were thinking about. But, but somehow they were like all loopy on this. And, and I show you, it says here, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? What kind of body will we have when we are raised? That's the question on the table right now. Second question. Can I tell you what he said to them? The first thing he said to them is this, you foolish twits. That's, that's what he said. I, I, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. For, verse 36, that's what he says, you foolish twits. It's in the original language. You'll have to look it up. And um, basically he's saying to them, look around yourself. You know nothing it would seem about how God functions in the universe. He says, I want you to check out the agriculture. I, I want you to look at seeds, and I, I want you to pay attention to fish and birds and, and the sun and the moon and the stars. Pay attention to God's creation, and you will be able to answer the question yourself. You see what he says here? When you sow, or what you sow, does not come to life unless it dies. Anybody plant anything here? You plant some seeds in the ground, you bury them, you cover them up. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. It doesn't, the seed that you put in the ground, when it comes out of the ground, it's not the seed anymore, it's a plant. It's different. And then he says, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. That's a heavenly body. The moon another. That's a heavenly body. The stars another. Those are heavenly bodies. And star differs from star and splendor. Wow, what an amazing astronomy lesson out of the text here long before they had telescopes. Different st stars having different splendor. Wow. He's emphasizing here a couple of things. And by the way, before we, did, before we uh, totally uh, unpackage this, I just want to point out to you that from verses 1 to 35, verses 1 to 34, when Paul talks about raising or resurrection, he talks about necros, the dead. But as soon as he gets to verse 35 and the rest of the chapter, and he talks about raising, he uses the word soma, which means body. Paul is now going to help that, to answer their question by stressing that resurrection is all about body. This is an important truth for us. Very important truth for us. And so what he is using in these illustrations is simply this. He's, he's talking about a continuity between the present body and the future one in that seeds that you bury and a plant that grows are connected to each other. They're genetically connected to each other. They're, they're the same essence, the same substance. But he's also wanting to explain that there's a difference as well. There are birds that are made to fly and, and, and they, they're, they're adapted to fly in the environment that God has created them to, fly in the air, and fish are, are made to swim in the sea. Now, admittedly, there's the odd fish that flies and there's the odd bird that can dive under the water, but they can't live there too long. There's the sun that burns. There's the moon that reflects the light. There are stars that are different sizes and dazzle and different splendor. So there's continuity and there's difference.
There's continuity between our present body and the future one that we're going to get at the resurrection. There's difference in that a body that is subject to decay or is perishable cannot function in an imperishable future. Look what he says. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. In other words, what we presently have, what we are living in right now, will not do. Our corruptible bodies that are subject to sin and decay cannot be allowed into the holy, incorruptible world of God's eternity. And by the way, this change that is required, the onus of our hope, is heavily predicated on the fact that our Creator has the ability to change us in an instant into a different body, a body that's adapted for a different environment, just like he does at creation. No time for evolving. A body, the answer to the question, what kind of body will we have? We will have a body that is imperishable. A body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. Three times that phrase is used between verses 50 and 54. In order to fully redeem humans, to buy us back from the slave market of sin that has corrupted our bodies and subjected us to death, in order to fully redeem us from the curse of bodies that were created very good, by the way, in order for that to happen, being changed merely into a spirit will not do. I hear people say, oh, you become an angel, like an angel, a spirit. No, we don't. Not one tiny bit. This is not what is presented here. Our material bodies must be redeemed. The effects of the curse must be reversed. In order for God to be all in all, and all creation, Paul writes to the Romans, all creation waits in eager anticipation for this to happen. Therefore, our natural bodies give way to a far better spiritual body so we can bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now, I know what you might be saying out there right now. Wait a second. I thought you told us like a minute ago that we weren't going to be spirit. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about spiritual bodies. Yes, spiritual bodies. Listen, spiritual bodies oxymoron, jumbo shrimp, okay? <laughs> Spiritual bodies. There's body involved in this. So what in the world is happening? What does it mean, pneumaticos soma? The hint or the answer is, is found in the end of verse 49. So shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave and had a resurrection body called the spiritual body. What it, what it means for us is 
our resurrected bodies are not going to be composed just of spirit because that, that's not the redemption of our material bodies. But they will be adapted to the age to come under the unhindered domination of the Spirit of God. That's what this means. None of us in here have ever experienced what it is to no longer have any influence of our corruptible bodies on us that are riddled with sin and, and are inclined to sin. When we are resurrected at the end from the grave, we will have spiritual bodies. Our bodies will be entirely dominated by the Spirit of God. That's what a spiritual body is. That's what we have to look forward to. And we will finally bear the image of God in the likeness of Christ the way we were created in the first place to bear. Question three, why do we need transformed bodies at all? Here's the answer, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's not talking about the kingdom of God we are presently in as Christ followers. The expression of God's kingdom that we are presently in. It's talking about the kingdom of God to come in eternity. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Quite simply put, the kingdom of God to come in eternity is not set up to receive pain and suffering and sorrow and tears and sin and death. Everything that our bodies are now subject to, the present bodies we have, the kingdom to come in eternity is not set up for that. God's not inviting any of that into his kingdom. No, I'm not inviting pain. I'm not inviting tears. I'm not inviting sorrow. I'm not inviting uh, sin. I'm not inviting death. Now we still feel the sting of death, even though death has been defeated by Christ. Then there will be no sting of death. Here's what awaits for us. Whether we die or we are alive when Christ comes back, at the last trumpet, when time shall be no more, the signal of the final defeat of death, we shall all be changed. Listen. I declare to you, brothers and, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery, which is no longer a mystery in your hearing. Today the mystery's over. You're hearing it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and we, 
and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For peri- He's just emphasizing over and over again, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the same that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's what we come to celebrate this morning. Death being swallowed up in victory. Why are we, do we need to have transformed bodies? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We will all be changed. Whether we, have already, whether we are already with the Lord, because we have died, or we are still living when Jesus comes back, either way, we all have to be changed. Those presently with the Lord are in the conscious presence of Christ. But without resurrected bodies... We live in an extended ending. When Christ rose from the grave, flesh and blood is adequate for the present expression of the kingdom of God, but it is not for the final eternal kingdom of God. Therefore, our destination is the eternal kingdom of God. Mystery no more, once hidden, now revealed. Not everyone will die, but everyone will be changed. In a blink of an eye. And by the way, the new destination is a new heaven and a new earth. It's not an airy fairy cloud with a harp. That's not what it is. Jesus himself gave us a pretty good hint of what it is. Jesus was able to appear on one side of a wall and then appear on the other side of the wall. Things are going to be different. The eight fish. If you don't like fish, there might be something else for you to eat. And then the final question wraps it all up in just glory. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? That's, we, you know, I've stood at the graveside of so many, and I've wept over so many. And I've wept for so many of you because of your great loss at that moment. But the Easter truth, the resurrection truth, the resurrection Sunday truth is this. That when we lay a loved one in the grave who is in Christ... There is no victory in that grave. The sting of death is gone. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's the text here. Death is done. That's what Easter guarantees. The terrorism of the grave is finished. God wins. That's the, God is all in all. Death is now powerless over those who are in Christ, over the dead in Christ, and over the living in Christ. Death is no longer our enemy. It is merely a transport to the presence of the living God for all eternity. That's the truth. That's what we we proclaim. That's what Paul says, you believed. We preached and you believed. Now, I I think Paul would be willing to say to us this morning... Even if you didn't see him in person like I did, and we haven't, 
And even if you, you don't understand all there is to this business of resurrection and all these things that I've been sharing with you, let this settle in your heart. If death wins, if death has the final say, if resurrection is really uncertain, that means God doesn't win. That means God is not all in all. That means he is not really God. I'm... I'm just thinking that in this room this morning, this may not be true of every single person, but I'm just thinking in this room this morning that whether or not you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior, you're here because you have some sense that there is a God. You're some sort of God-fearer. Maybe you thought you should come to church at least on Easter. To believe that God is requires you believing that God is all in all. Requires you believing that God wins. Requires you believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And if you believe that Christ is raised from the dead, you can be saved. See, this, um, this truth, this glorious truth for us is that since God is God, death is dead. And we know our destiny is set. Our destination is set. We know we will rise from the dead and be with God for all time. But I need you to hear me right now because... The truth about resurrection is not just the truth for Christians, not just true of those in Christ. It's true of every human being. Everybody in Adam, and you all are, will die. But every single one of you will also be raised. But here's the difference. Those raised in Christ, who belong to Christ, also will spend eternity with the living God. But those raised who have rejected and rebelled and are enemies of God are raised to eternal damnation, it says in John 5, 28. What that means is, You have rejected and rebelled against God for your entire life. And now you face the consequences for all eternity of that rebellion. You don't want God, you won't have God. You don't want the goodness of God, you won't have the goodness of God. For all eternity. No chance to change your destiny. So today's message is a good news message because here you are breathing, aware, an opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ who died on Calvary's cross 
to take your sins and be your substitute was buried, rose again to be your Savior, your living Savior, to take you to be with Him for all eternity. Christ is risen. That's our great eternal reward. Paul ends this section by saying, therefore, to those who know Jesus, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of God. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Why do we make room for Christ every day in our lives? Because our great reward waits for us. The great story today is that death is dead and God wins and you all can get in on it. Father, I pray this morning by the power of your, the convicting work of your spirit that you might awaken slumbering hearts. Lord, among your people who have become complacent and not standing firm, not holding fast to what we believe, being moved about by every doubt and every doctrine, Oh, Lord, today, on the basis of this truth, let us stand firm, not be moved, no matter what. Those who don't know you today, Lord, today is a day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Don't reject God again. Don't rebel against God again. Open up your life to receive this truth of salvation and resurrection to eternal life after death. Oh, Lord, I pray. And for those who know and love you and are serving you with vigorous hearts, Lord. Let us celebrate now with great, great vigor and eagerness because our Savior lives. Our Savior's alive. God wins. Praise your glorious name. Amen. Amen, amen, and amen. What a glorious, glorious truth this is. If you couldn't wave at me this morning to indicate that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I, I would urge you not to leave here today that way. Some of us will be here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in your life. Or you can go out of this room and turn right there's a connections room. There's some people there. I'd love to talk to you. You can talk, have an opportunity just to uh, get along with somebody and chat about it. This is too important a decision to walk away from and not make today. There might be one last question that you're asking. Is there a head start in all of this, this resurrection stuff? I mean, the people who have passed away in Christ, are they, are they already in their resurrection bodies? The answer is no. There's no head starts in this. We, no advantages. They're in the presence of Christ, in God's rooming house, 
however you want to. Today, Jesus said to the thief, you will be with me in paradise. There, with Christ, in the conscious presence of Christ. But the resurrection bodies that we're going to get for all of eternity happen at the last trumpet. When the last trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back, those who are in the grave will be assembled. Their bodies will be resurrected. And we who are still alive will be changed, all of us, in the twinkling of an eye. And so shall we be always with the Lord. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He is risen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.